fantastic beast and audiences have more affinity for him than they do for Frankenstein or other screen monsters. That was said by William Cronick, a second unit director on 1976's King Kong. And we're going to address that and a whole bunch of other stuff about the 1976 version of King Kong here on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show and big thanks to the band, the WLJP Appreciation Society. What you're hearing is their song, Let's Go Ape, from their album, Let's Go Ape. You can find them at wjlp.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash william j I apologize, William, I'm going to mispronounce this, so I'm just going to spell it. L-E-P-E-T-O-M-A-N-E. The link is in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Welcome back to the show. Now, like I said, we're going to talk about that quote by William Cronick and decide whether or not we agree with that. I had a number of people call in to give us their thoughts, and we're going to hear from Paul McComas. Now, I started chatting with Paul last week on episode 295 when we started our epic conversation about all things King Kong with a focus on the 1976 film. Paul loves the 1976 version of the film. I was a little lukewarm when I came to it, and I'll tell you my thoughts about it now at the end of the episode, or at least at the end of the conversation, when we're also going to get to some voicemails from some listeners who had some comments about what Paul had to say about King Kong, thoughts about King Kong 76 overall, or what William Cronick had to say about King Kong versus Frankenstein, the affinity thing, that sort of thing. We're going to get to all of that, and then we're going to mention the passing of somebody who was in some very important monster movies at the end of the episode. We're going to get to all of that right after this. The world's craziest fun and fright show, The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monster. It's so scary, so crazy, we dare you to see it. We dare you to see The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. The screen's funniest and wildest teenagers in the craziest fun and fright show you've ever seen. We'll see weird and frightening movie monsters, not only on the screen, but in the audience, alive and in person. See the horrifying mad mummy come to life and go into the audience to get you. We warn you, don't come if you're chicken. This show is not for sissies. If you're not afraid, be sure to see the world's craziest fun and fright show, The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monster. A thousand and one laughs, thrills, and chills. In widescreen and Eastman color. Hi, this is Ruby. And I'm Hater. And we host the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. A podcast based on Christopher R. Mim, a Minnesota filmmaker who's got eight films under his belt, soon to be nine. And they're all 1950s-style black-and-white movies. The podcast revolves around actors, the making of the films, and various other little fun bits. And technicians. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us at SaintEuphoria.com. Or like us on Facebook. That would be the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. Hope you tune in.
escapes and meets his greatest foe, the Kong of Steel. A gargantuan duel, unmatched by any battle in history. Thundering 60-foot robot Kong of Steel, creation of the evil Doctor Who, criminal genius who stops at nothing. Kong, once again, dig! The American merchant vessel Petrox Explorer has just set sail from the port of Surabaya in search of oil. What they find will shock the world. We may be sailing into the history books. She's alive! You know, maybe my luck has changed. They will discover an uncharted island that is the home the most incredible creature on the face of the earth. A creature called Kong. Dino De Laurentiis presents the most exciting original motion picture event of all time. adventure. before. With Jeff Bridges, Charles Roden, and introducing Jessica Lange as the beauty who charmed the beast. And starring the eighth wonder of the world, King Kong. 
subject of engaging with the ape, notice this. After 33 Kong, where she screams and screams and screams, comes the son of Kong, known affectionately as Kiko. K-I for King, K-O for Kong. Kiko, little Kiko. And here, the brunette, the girl, if you will, is able to engage because it's a cutified, infantilized version of the big threatening libidinal ape. And so this is maybe a baby step in the direction of a woman, a the woman, the blonde, um, eventually bonding with Kong. And then we get Mighty Joe Young, original version, in the, what, late 40s, I think, 49? Uh, yes, 49. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And so, again, it's a smaller Kong-like creature, Kong-like gorilla. I think she's a brunette. I can't remember. No, maybe not. Anyway, the girl... Uh, the woman, she, she is bonding with Kong. And these are steps leading to 76. And then 76 leads to the non-exploitative, full-on loving friendship of 2005. You're, skip, you're skipping the Linda Hamilton film that came after. <laughs> oh, my God. The, yes, the sequel? Yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> I sure am skipping it in every set. <laughs> okay, Kong Kong lives. What a misguided uh, uh, from start to finish. Yeah, oh, God, Lady Kong, Baby Kong. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my dearest friends loves that movie, and um, I have to say, I don't think I've seen it in <laughs> from start to finish in forever. I like the shot where he munches on alligators. Where does that take place? That scene, the munching on the. On the reptiles, and I don't know. Either alligators or crocs, I don't know. That's kind of cool. That's it. That is it. Yeah. What's the yeah. name of the male lead that killed his career? Uh, was it Brian Kerwin? Yeah, right. Mm. But at least Hamilton went on to do some some more fine work. I still think the thirty three is is the best because it's the first and whatever. But I think the seventy six mm-hmm. does serve a lot more attention and appreciation for what it is, especially when you start looking at what went into the behind the scenes. And with De Laurentiis, there's a pending lawsuit coming because Universal's talking about doing their own version of Kong and which Kong's going to come out first and they're taking each other to court and all that. And so that's happening. The film itself isn't really ready to go into production by the time they go into production. They're struggling. They're behind the scenes and all that. So when you know some of these things about the behind the scenes and what went into it, it's an even more fascinating film that they actually pulled it off. It's kind of like Denim in the first and third, yes. especially third movies, where they're not quite ready, but here we go. And, you know, Jack Black's Denim is like, oh, we got to get out of this box right now. <laughs> That's sort of how Dino and um, Gilliman made, made the movie. Uh, we better hurry and get some footage shot because, you know, we, we have to have precedent here that the thing is underway and we want to finish it before this thing goes any further along in legal channels and so that, that's kind of an interesting mirror. You know, I'm going to say this, too, about um, the relationship between two and three. Okay. Maybe they think that the, all they used the source material was 33 and Jackson's imagination. But there's some 76 in there, too. Okay. Whether he's going to allow, allow this or not, and whether it was intentional or not, it may have been subconscious. I see elements of the Duan Kong relationship in the... Darrow Kong relationship in 05. And maybe he would have gotten there anyway, but the precedent 
for the bonding in both directions and the trying to save Kong in the end was there in 76. And so it becomes part of the history of Kong and part of the mythos and part of the canon with a K <laughs> in this case. Case with a K too. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and it's undeniable. It's there in our cortex. And it can't help, I think, but inform any subsequent version, just like the O5 will inform Kong Skull Island and anything that comes after. You do see that, I think, because you do have the introduction of the the strong actress character in the 76th with Dwan. There, there's a lot of Dwan I could see that carried over. I think that makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. And if you, I wouldn't recommend, I don't know. Maybe it would be interesting to sit down and watch all three of these back to back to back. Just keep in mind that they get longer as they go along. Yeah, I uh, just did. I did, but I started with 76. Okay, because, okay. Yeah, and then I went to 33, and then yesterday I went to Jackson. And I did it last year, too, actually, Dark, because we were supposed to do this then. But I'm glad we waited. I know, right? <laughs> this is the 40th anniversary coming up of 76. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean much to a lot of people, but it does to me, and it does to... To well, my buddy John Scott, you know who you should have on the show. He he was the one who did the um the fanzine Many Faces of Price, which was part of our macabre publications group, where I was doing Lonnie Jr. and oh. Fright Monsters. Uh, I did two mags, one on mimeograph, one on uh, carbon paper, and John was uh, I think xeroxing Many Faces of Price. Our friend Greg Starrett was doing Conrad for Conrad Vice. And there's a kid in New York State doing uh, Wolves and Werewolves. And we were macabre publications. We were a little publishing company. So anyway, John and I went to see on opening night, December 17th, Friday uh, of 76, uh, Kong. And you know, I wasn't driving yet, so uh, my mom took us and picked us up. And it, it was wonderful. It's kind of like with, and I keep mentioning Logan's Run, I guess, because it came out just a few months later in the summer of 76. But we were at that age where you could equally be in love with someone like box from Logan's run, who was just too cool and <laughs> the Kong of Kong 76. And at the same time as you were in love with those critters, you could be in love with Jenny Agater and Jessica Lang. It was that magical liminal space between boyhood and manhood where you're kind of equally besotted by, uh, the giant genre character, and the, oh my God, beautiful, sensuous young woman. So I will always carry that baggage, uh, if you can call it baggage, or that lens, let's say, um, from both of those movies. And when it comes to Kong, no, I can't look at 76 objectively, uh, because I, I, I fell in love with, with her and Kong and the movie, you know, on that night in December uh, 40 years ago. And I think John and I each saw it twice more in the theater. And then it was great when it finally came out on, I guess I rented it on VHS at some point and got to see it again for the first time because, as you know, it was not re-released uh, into theaters ever. I do remember seeing it when it was first shown on network TV over two nights and they added in some footage, uh, some of which I think should stay. The conversation between Jack and Dwan in the bar in New York in the final version, you know, do you think it's going to work between us or words to that effect? And, and he says, I don't know, uh, there's Kong, he's bigger than both of us. It's a funny line. And I believe that in, in the uncut version, it continues into 
you know, who's saying, oh, come on, be serious. And he says, well, you know, given what's happened, I think that if Kong makes it out alive, yeah, we probably can. But, but if not, then I, I don't know. And that leads so nicely to that ending scene where, hey, she's got what she always wanted. I think it's the most effective ending of the three, actually. Uh, you don't really need the whole Beauty and the Beast thing if you've got her being surrounded by the mob. It's like, here you go. Here's your fame. Everyone's taking pictures of you. I'm not saying this in a punitive way. I'm just saying it's the logical outcome of participating in the exploitation. And again, I don't really blame her for it. Yeah, I guess I really do. Uh, but, uh, you know, and then he's trying to get to her and he can't reach her. And that's just right. Now, there was a scene filmed or scripted, I can't remember which, where he gives up and turns away. And that then makes sense with his line before. But so does the ending that we have make sense with his line before. The interesting parallel that just occurred to me is the last shots of this movie with the last shots of Logan's Run, where there is a mob surrounding one or both of the principals. And in the case of Kong, some jerk sneaked in, like, I don't know, waving his arm around, like, look at me, I'm in this crowd scene. And in Logan's Run, some jerk did the Vulcan uh, hand sign. Um, <laughs> you get a mob together, you know, and now you can CJI that out, but the, at the time you couldn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Off on another tangent, unnecessary tangent. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I don't know if I noticed the guy. Wait, I'll have to go back and darn, I have to watch the movie again. Yeah. No, not darn. You get to watch the movie yeah. <laughs> again. You know, it's a good date flick. Has Brenda seen it with you? No. I don't know. No, okay. no, no, I don't think she has seen it overall. I watched it on my own for this. But yeah. I, I wonder. I wonder what her take would be on that, especially on the character of Dwan. I'll, I'll have to talk to her and see if she'd be interested in checking it out. Yeah. Have a romantic dinner, glass of wine, you know, <laughs> maybe two. <laughs> but stay awake and uh, put it Well, let's talk a little more about the politics of the film. It is in its 70s. Wow. And so we're at, you know, what? Just huh? wow! There, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's about uh, environmental rape. It's about the energy crisis and how to or not to respond to it. It's made during the Ford administration. It's anticipating uh, Carter and the moral equivalent of war, as he puts it, to the energy crisis. You've got Kong in the hold, which reminds me, we still have to talk about the the slavery metaphor. The Gro Charles Grodin character, who I haven't touched on yet, is just such a He's, I think he's played extremely well, and he's a he's a funny villain, and that's always appreciated. You know, he's just this crass, money grubbing corporatist. He's not the CEO; he's the guy below the CEO who's got to make things happen for Petrox. I love the fact that Kong is rolled out in a giant gas tank. Yeah, you know, because that it, Kong's being exploited. So why be subtle about it? Mm -hmm. Um and. And I think growing through the microphone, he says, Kong and Petrox, the, the unlimited power of Kong and Petrox. Yeah. And so it, the commercialism, you know, of, of that, it, it, it is a scathing critique. The, the simple script, Lorenzo's simple script is brilliant. It's such yes. a fun and funny script. Mm -hmm. And Gilliman directs it expertly. And the actors have fun with their lines and with their roles. Even something little like the Joe Turco character, they get Dwan out of the lifeboat and into the cabin. And he, this big hulking guy is saying, uh, 
Uh, gotta take a clothes off, uh, check for uh, internal injuries, which of course makes no sense whatsoever. Right. Like, Get out of here, Turco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fun and funny script. You know, I was reading, um, I have three books I want to recommend before I forget. Okay. Uh, it's not commentary, but I am going to stress that none of these does the kind of feminist critique of the three eras and the question of relative exploitation or not. That's mine. But uh, so these three books, King Kong, The History of a Movie Icon uh, by Ray Morton. And it takes you up to the Jackson version, which I believe hadn't been released yet. There's not much in the way of uh, like photos and, uh, and commentary there. Uh, Kong Unbound, The Cultural Impact, Pop Mythos, and Scientific Plausibility of a Cinematic Legend. So Kong Unbound... Featuring essays by Ray Bradbury. Ooh, nice. Alan Dean Foster, David Gerald, Harry Harrison. You know who that is? Ah, uh, you know, I've only had one cup of coffee this morning. Harry Harrison, he wrote a novel called Make Room, Make Room, which became the movie Soylent Green. The third of three is um, King Kong is Back, edited by David Brin, B-R-I-N. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. And, yeah, any uh, Kong fanatic really has to have these three books. One of my favorite essays, if I can find it quickly. This is so weird. Well, they have titles like Queer Eye for the Ape Guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Twas Stupidity Killed the Beast. Uh, <laughs> but my favorite is called Anne, Abandoned. Ooh, and it's okay. a what if. What if Denim and Driscoll had this said, okay, yeah, we got to get out of Dodge, and taken their crew and the ship and gone away. And what are the different possibilities for life for Andero with Kong on Skull Island? And it goes to some places that not many of us would go. The uh, King Kong is back book is worth it, you know, just for that essay and abandoned by Adam Troy, Adam hyphen Troy, Adam Troy Castro, to whom I should write a fan letter. Yeah, these are great books. Great books. There's so much to talk about in the mythos, and maybe that leads us to the iffy subject of race. Okay. Yeah, let's, there, there is, like you said, it might not necessarily be racist, but there are some racial commentary things happening yeah. here. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you don't see it, you're not paying attention, I feel like. That's right. And you're, and you're shrinking away from, not just a really, you know, key part of the Kong mythos, but also one of the most important issues in, in being human and, and fully human, uh, which is to say inclusive and uh, celebrative of diversity. And it's interesting because it crops up in the Planet of the Apes series too. And why? Because, not, not a, obviously not because of some similarity uh, between simians and people of African descent. If anything, we're more like apes, uh, you and I white people, because we're hairy. Uh, Africans uh, have much, much less body hair. But because Africans lived in Africa, where most apes are from, not the orangutan, which is Borneo and Sumatra, but the other apes are, you know, chimps, gibbons, and, uh, and gorillas are all strictly from Africa. So when white explorers went to Africa, they encountered for the first time African people and apes and being racists they tended to conflate the two. Mm -hmm. So there it is. And it is turned into all kinds of really ugly smearing of people of African descent. We can reduce it 
and we can uh, fight against it, and we, we should and we do, but there it is. Given that it's there, we can look at the fact that Kong was brought from his so-called third world, that itself is an objectionable term, but his so-called third world uh, home to huh, New York, you know, the, the capital of the Western world, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and of commercialism, and, and put on display and utilized and exploited by the white man. And no more clearly than in Kong 76, where he's in the hold. We see him. It's implied in the other two versions. And of course, 05 doesn't go there because 33 didn't, and it's a tribute to 33. 76 goes there, to its credit. And so it's simultaneously about eco-rape, because he's in the hold where normally uh, all that uh, drill baby drill would be uh, stored. And it's also racial, because there he is, lying there in a very tight, confining space, just like the slaves, the human beings who were kidnapped, many of them at cost of their lives, separated in many cases from their families, certainly from their culture, from their world, and brought over. And then, you know, just as a sidebar, you see it in Planet of the Apes too, because the, the power structure shifts in Planet of the Apes in terms of who's on top, apes or humans. And by the time of Conquest, an underrated film, you have the Watts riots as an actual, in some cases, shot by shot, the coverage of a template for the uprising of the apes. This film was extreme conquest, very popular in uh, African-American communities and theaters. Not, again, because of a similarity uh, of people to animals, right. but because of the similarity of, of history to some extent at the hands of the white power structure. And, you know, I've read that uh, the original Kong, probably the other ones too, uh, have also been well-received because of that echo there. That echo that is not a racist echo, even if it is caused by racist actions of the past. Okay? Okay. You can see that I'm trying to hedge this very carefully so that we don't end up saying something atrocious. Because we don't believe something atrocious here, but right. we have to be careful with our language um, and our contextualization to make sure that yeah. nothing atrocious gets perceived well, either. W- w- words mean something. Words have power, and you yeah. know, we, we want to make sure that we're using the right words to communicate exactly what you're saying. The, right. These are not things that we... Back it up a 30-second listeners to, to hear what Paul said, because he'll say it much better than I'm going to. Um, <laughs> right, and there's this noble savage theme, okay, which is patronizing and demeaning, and it's animalizing of humans if you take it too far. But at the same time, it presents Kong, even in the first version, even in very racist times, presents him as a tragic hero, as well as being a monster. So there is sympathy, maybe some empathy for the kidnappee, even in the first version. And that is a tacit acknowledgement that this was the wrong thing for Denim to do. He's not punished for it. He's not punished for it the way Grodin's character is in the second one. But so race is in there. Race is in there and race is in there too when you look at the villagers. They are presented as African-American in the first two versions if I'm I'm not African-American. They are presented as African-ish. They are presented as black or black-ish right. in the first two versions. In the third version, they seem to be kind of pan-racial slash, what, Polynesian-ish? I don't know. They've got 
paint on their faces and I'm colorblind. What color are they in the third one? Oh, uh, I'm also colorblind. So, <laughs> okay, there you go. Well, no wonder we get along. There we go. Um, and it's good. Of course, it's good to be colorblind in a different sense, but, True. um, they are, they're so hostile. They're still quote third world unquote in the third version, obviously. And, uh, they're so hostile. Now I get it. They have been living a dystopian life, right? On this terror island, uh, of uh, this the terrifying Skull Island, and it has driven them to basically all into a kind of madness. And that makes sense. But I sort of miss in the third one the the notion of a functional tribal culture that has adopted Kong as simply a deity with fear of him in the sense of respect, not just being terrified. And there's that great line in, in 76 where Groden's character... Fred Wilson. Fred. Fred Wilson, yeah, where Wilson is saying, well, they, you know, they should be thanking us. You know, we look what we saved them from. And Bridges' uh, Driscoll character says, no, just the opposite. You know, we took away their magic. We took away their God. We took away what, I'm paraphrasing, of course, what, what elevates life to uh, this, um, this magical spiritual level. And, you know, come back in a couple of years, they'll probably all be drunk and stoned. Because this was their reason for being, for believing. It kept them on their toes, if you will. Um, of course, <laughs> yeah. they didn't have to contend with all those dinosaurs either. But uh, anyway, I'll go back to the first version. Obviously, it reflects its times and all. But uh, but Noble Johnson, I think he does a fine job playing the the leader of that tribe in the first version, and he comes across as as uh, strong, not as comical. So at least there's that. Yeah. It's a delicate issue, so I'm trying to choose my words. Yeah, I do. You yeah. know what? Get a, get, a, get a scholar of African descent um, to talk about this. I, I, not that it would be representative of all such scholars, but it would be interesting to hear one of those voices. Sure. And again, if you go back and you look at the history of the first Kong and what those filmmakers were doing before they made King Kong, you know, Cooper and Shotsack right. and all them, and the right. types of movies that they were making, they would go on right. these, these expeditions to go into parts of the world mm-hmm. where people hadn't been, especially in terms of bringing these people to the screen. I mean, we didn't yeah. have the internet. We didn't have TV the way that we do now, you know, so a lot of times these people that we're seeing through the lens of these film, these films, uh, it's the first time anybody saw anything like that that didn't look yeah. like them. So I could see some of that right. kind of carrying over into the King Kong mythos because, again, of their background and what they did. Which, by right. the way, their and films, the, have you seen like Grass or Chang or any of those movies that they've I done? Chang, yeah. Yeah, I which I think Chang. was just on TCM the other day. Okay. And it's it's interesting to see it's where some of the, it. Yeah. Yeah. It's neat to see uh, to watch it and and then fill in the lines to uh, to King Kong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can see the ancestry of a film like Kong certainly in those movies and in the Denim character. Um, yes. Because you know when they made those films, uh, Cooper and Shutzak, uh, they they were Denim. Mm-hmm. There is something. There is a dialogue exchange that happens in the '76 that when it happened, I thought, well, whoa. Why, why was that there? And and I wanted to get your take on it, given yeah. the work that you do. Yeah. Fred does say to Dwan, he raped you, honey. Yeah. He, he raped you. You know, it was rape. To me, it felt a little, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, just it, it, it kind of screeched the movie to a halt for me for a second because yeah. it brought something into the movie that I wasn't expecting. What okay. was your take on it? What's your take on that? that whole okay. Bit? First thing we have to do is notice that the, the line belongs to the villain. Okay. That's true. That's so true. That's true. Yeah. 
it does not represent the voice of the film, as it were. Good point. Um, It's also inaccurate. It's also a surmise on Fred's part. It's also his attempt to convince her of something. And it also comes from his time period. You know, I loved the TV show MASH, and I'm a a MASH scholar to some extent. I do a uh, four-hour presentation on it, not all at once. And (laughs) yeah, as as, it's a wonderful liberal anti-war show, it's in, it was made in the 70s, so it's about the 70s as well as about the early 50s. And you can see that especially in the, in the character arc of uh, Margaret Houlihan, who stops being um, hot lips pretty pretty early on in the run and evolves in a way that she wouldn't have in the early 50s, but would in the mid-70s. But, you know, there are a couple of rape jokes every now and then where... Even Hawkeye, our hero played by feminist Alan Alda, will make some line, ah, da da da, get raped. And the same thing, it puts it, the, the hairs on the back of your neck go up because, whoa, that is so not funny. It wasn't taken as seriously as it should be or as it is now. Still not taken as seriously as it should be. So, yeah, uh, the word itself has such power as it should more than it did then. And now, since you went there, let's just talk about the extent to which in any of these three, what Kong does can be considered rape or sexual abuse. Because that gets interesting, too. There's none in the third one. There is abduction. Sure. And there is some physical abuse. I'm not going to call it domestic because, no, they are not partners. They've become friends. So there is no sexual abuse or anything even close to right in the third version. First version, I believe the only time that he really overtly sexualizes her is when he strips her and she's unconscious. Yes, that's still sexual abuse, but there's a different tone to it and mood to it because she's asleep and because she's not cognizant of it. The second one, and this is tough, because, you know, our culture and our entertainments, to some extent, prompt us to find sexy what he's doing to Dwan there on that moonlit night. And it really isn't, but we're sort of programmed and conditioned, men are, really women are too by a lot of media, to find that a sexy when he takes that big phallic index finger and uses it to take off the necklaces and then pull the pull the top down and and bare her breast. As a fourteen year old boy in the seventies, did I love that scene? Yes. As a fifty six year old man watching it again, do I enjoy that scene? Even though I do all this work in rape crisis, yes. But I'm also aware that it's a movie. I'm also aware that it's within a context, and I'm also aware that that's as far as it's going to go. And I'm also aware that in this version, there does seem to be some mutual interest, even though she doesn't, I think she pretty clearly doesn't want that to happen and has not consented to it. So yes, it's wrong, but he is an animal, not a man acting like an animal. And that maybe is pretty key. And uh, does not have the, um, you know, the super ego, the acculturization, the conscience 
that a human being should bring to um, any sort of, you know, potentially romantic or sexual interaction or relationship, in the case of straight people, any kind of opposite sex uh, pairing. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? I do. I do. Okay. It is sexual abuse, and and but it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. It, and I would say this too, and it obviously doesn't excuse it if it's a, if it's a human doing it to a human in real life, but it, it adds context, context. It adds context in our particular case of Kong seventy six to say that he also is in love with her. Again, not an excuse in a real life human to human interaction, but possibly some some helpful twist of the lens to viewing what 76 Kong, an animal, does in that scene. Yeah. Um, it does change. I mean, man, such a heady, heavy, heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's weighted. Tough stuff. Um, it is so weighted. And by the way, what happens while he's trying to get her clothes off? A huge old phallic snake shows up. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I, I, I do buy into a lot of Freud. Um, and Jung both, and here comes the big Freudian snake to uh, to force the issue, and he has to beat it back, which is to say, uh, maybe to say, beat back his own looming, pulsing, swelling uh, masculinity, and he saves her from it, from the snake and from what the snake represents. What's the other huge phallus in this movie? It's the bar that bars the doors of the wall. And when it opens, it opens to let them bring Dwan out to the altar for her deflowering, her, you know, symbolic deflowering. You know, I'm sorry if this is getting us into a place that uh, some listeners aren't going to be comfortable with, but you know, sex is a part of life and, frankly, a really good part of life if it's, if it's done, uh, you know, consensually. That's the rub, you know, literally and figuratively. That's the rub, but uh, <laughs> here it's not. <laughs> here it's not consensual. And uh, so we have to look at all the different complicating factors, like it's an animal and like it's a movie and like uh, the animal, to my viewing, is in love with her and, and, and. And maybe this, too, it's a complication on a complication. What is called? Is he a gorilla? Because gorillas aren't that big. And gorillas don't walk upright like Kong 76 does. So is he a gorilla or is he something more than a gorilla and less than an us? Does he have a more developed brain? Should he be expected to have a more developed consciousness and conscience? I'm throwing these out there as questions. I don't have answers to them. And I might have a different answer next time I watch the movie than I than I do right now. I haven't seen it two days ago. Right. But the question the questions are really interesting, I think, and worth pondering, not necessarily answering. Yeah. Well, I, I I take you to some strange places, Derek. That um, I don't know if I should <laughs> apologize. Because no, it's it's um. See, that's one of the things I love about doing Monster Kid Radio is, you know, we we can talk about a movie, about how much we love the movie, and just talk about as a fan when we first saw it, that sort of thing, and and, and call it good. But so many of these movies, you can dive, 
or not even have to dive. You can just look barely beneath the surface and you can yeah. see so many different things that you can talk about and address and how it applies to us now versus when the, when they made the film. And then you start getting deeper and deeper and deeper and you start to lose. We're just talking about a movie. We, we're not just talking about a movie. We are talking about a piece of art that's representative of the culture from which it came out of. Uh, mm-hmm. By the people who made the story to begin with, or made the movie to begin with, there, there's right. a lot to really look into, and I love getting kind of into the weeds with these kinds of things. Just really deep yeah, into yeah. them. That said, I don't yeah. really have a lot to contribute to conversations okay. like that because I, um, I, I don't <laughs> you're have. You're pondering. You're, pop- yeah. you're pondering things in your heart and in your and your exceptional brain, Derek. And uh, I hope this doesn't come off wrong. The next time that you interview someone about Kong, you'll have new perspective from which to, to ferret out what, what they think sure. and, and what they feel just like I will for having had this conversation. <laughs> See, it always comes back to Forey and those awful puns. I could have not. I right. grew up on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of, it's part of the DNA, man. It's just fine. Yeah. You know, I've heard enough Monster Kid Radio to know that even if it's more of a, a fanboy, fangirl, Monster Kid conversation, even if it's more about um, how an effect was done or which movie in a franchise is better than the others and why, you never descend to the level of the Chris Farley show, if that means anything to you. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Do you know what that means? Yeah. For those who don't, it was a recurring sketch on SNL, what, 20 years or so ago. Chris Farley would play a version of Chris Farley that would have, like, Martin Scorsese on. He'd say, another part in Guitars where Joe Pesci was like, uh, do you think I'm a clown? you think I'm funny? And he got really scary. Remember that part? And Scorsese would say, yes. And Farley would say, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, uh, you do run into some of that at the conventions along with things like, yeah, but the special effects in the second one sucked when I'm trying to make a point about, I don't know, uh, 51% of the world population and how they're regarded by uh, the other 49. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and by the way, if any of your listeners are afraid of that word, feminist, all it has ever meant is recognition of equal capacities mm-hmm. and therefore the need for across the board equal opportunities. That's all it's ever meant. It's not female supremacy. Not at all. No, not at all. So no. everyone should embrace it. And in some ways, it's more important for men to embrace it than women. So, Unfortunately, that's the case, isn't it? Yep. Yep. But you have a strong wife and you get it. Yep. And you're probably raped by a strong woman. I had a strong mother and a great, strong older sister, and I came of age during the 70s, and I I get it. It's, it just gets tricky when you start talking about, and yet, that scene under the moonlight in 76 worked for me then and works for me still. Right. And, you know, I can blame that on, on media conditioning, but, and I don't even know, Derek, I don't honestly know if I need to feel bad about it or not. I don't know. As a feminist, I'll, you know, I probably should, but I, but I don't. It's, you know, it's Jessica Lang at the end of the day consenting to that scene, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that maybe that's, that's part of it is it doesn't feel exploitive. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe that's it. Yeah. She's a beautiful woman. She knows she's a beautiful woman. I'm talking about not Dwan, but Jessica Lang. Mm-hmm. And 
even if she would have preferred not to have that scene. She's doing it consensually. Uh, no one forced her to sign a contract. And I would like to think that um, in some way, her, her consenting to the scene and doing the scene, and doing it very well in terms of um, you know her, her fear and her hesitancy and her hesitancy to, to try to stop him because he's a big ape, big scary ape. All of that kind of goes into a sensuality on her part as she navigates what's happening. And maybe a tacit recognition then on Jessica Lang's part that she is beautiful and is unashamed. Now I'm reading too much into it, maybe, but she did consent to the scene. And so I think she's unashamed. And, and, and maybe she even feels good um, about how she looks. And, and, and that's part of what's in there. I don't know. Maybe I'm rationalizing. Maybe I'm just trying to make excuses to figure out why it's okay uh, for me to, to, to have liked that scene and to like yeah. it still. But then again, you know, look at objectification. I'll say... Mm-hmm. feminist that while it has a vast majority of it in our culture and in our media therefore has has been in one direction objectification of women by men but we are increasingly getting to a place i think where women are able to partake of the kind of quote-unquote objectification be it of men or of each other in lesbian situations, bisexual situations, that men have always been kind of permitted, loud, quote, unquote, entitled to. Um, I am really uh, engaging in some word soup here, and I apologize. Uh, maybe a little bit of the meaning <laughs> of what I'm trying to say is, is getting through. If you're literally reducing someone to an object, that is a kind of objectification that is different, I think, from the objectification of I'm attracted to this person physically right. as well as in other ways. That physical attraction, you know, you could call it objectification or not, but uh, it's okay. In fact, it's a really good thing. I do see the difference, and I think you're right. Okay. That's, that's pretty much all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Because you're right, you do kind of get, yeah. Depending on the situation. Yeah. Sure. Uh oh, I've shocked them. <laughs> no, no, I'm here. No, I'll say, yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, is there is there anything else to say? About? I think that sigh of yours says it all. Uh, no, I, I um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where to take it from here. What else is there to say about King? I think we pretty much covered. Oh no. Uh, the, uh, well. We're both going to think of things to say after we hang Of up. course we are. That, yeah. that happens every time I do an episode of MKR, whether it's with you or anybody else. As soon as I get done recording, I think, oh, I meant to bring that up. Right. Oh, what about this? <laughs> and then, oh, wait, when he said that half an hour ago, I should have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I do have a quote here that I wanted to run by you. I wanted to get your take on, on okay. this. And I think I know where you're going to go. And this might be a good way to kind of transition to kind of wrapping up here. Now, William Cronick was uh, involved in both films, uh, the first one and then the 76. He was a second unit director on the 76 film. Yeah. And he said, Kong is a fantastic beast and audiences have more affinity for him than they do for Frankenstein or other screen monsters. Mm-hmm. You agree or disagree? not a competition um what i would say uh, okay yeah what i would say is that you can kind of categorize them and i would put dracula on one side and on that same side i would put classic godzilla 
And on the other side, I would put the Frankenstein monster, uh, King Kong, uh, Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, Caris, the mummy. And you see the divider I'm making, right? I, I think I do see it here, yeah. Yeah. How would you describe it? The line that you're making here? The, yeah. the comparison that you're making? Well, I, I'm definitely seeing the... the, the be- well, I don't want to say the word. Bestial is almost what came out of my mouth, but that's not exactly what I mean. The more of the animal attraction versus... Yeah. That, that's kind of where my head was going with what you were saying, but... Yeah. Um, evil. Good versus it's flat evil. Out evil. Okay. Good, okay. Good versus okay. evil. I mean, there have certainly been vampire tales and even Dracula tales where uh, sympathy is engendered because it, it for vampires, usually not for Dracula, but sometimes for Dracula, it's presented as a curse. But more often, he's demonic. Godzilla, you know, in some movies, is presented as a silly hero, and in others, um, as as just a a monster that wants to kill and destroy. So Kong obviously is over there with the accursed Larry Talbot and the accursed Kari's and the assembled by others uh, through no fault of his own uh, Frankenstein monster. And I think that we relate to and empathize with different aspects of all of these. And it gets us back to that tricky question of are there segments of society that historically relate more to the notion of being kidnapped and transported against their will. So that is in there. And so is the idea of unrequited love in there. Whereas things like the Wolfman, it might be more about living with some sort of a quote-unquote curse, some element of you um, that, that you never asked for and that separates you. There was a rumor at one point, that Lon Chaney Jr. might have been a positive homosexual. Um, whether it's true or not is not germane, but uh, because I don't know the answer, uh, and it's not really relevant. The, the bigger question is, can you look at the Wolfman films through that lens? And not to say that gay men are hostile toward women, because no, not so. But there is a kind of a hostility to the wolfman towards the ones that he loves and it keeps them from having consummated uh, relationships. So there are many, many ways to look at this. And of course, the Anne Rice uh, vampire stuff is widely perceived as being metaphorical about uh, about being gay in a straight society. Again, I'm off on a, a huge tangent, but getting back to Kong, do does each of us at some point in points in our life feel like the 30-foot-tall gorilla in the room, or however big it is, depending. Yeah, sure. And beyond that, have we known people and or animals who we've felt sympathy, pity, empathy for, who Kong reminds us of, for sure. And that's getting back to what I said at the beginning, seeing Rise of the Planet of the Apes, seeing um, Kong 2 or 3, does make me want to go and hug my doll, because there's uh, an empathy for animals that many of us have that uh, it plays on our heartstrings in some ways more than empathy for humans because we recognize that the animal is an innocent, that it, it doesn't have nastiness in it. Even Godzilla, I suppose, maybe I shouldn't lump them with Dracula because there's nothing evil about the animal acting the way it does. You remember not too long ago, there's a little boy that stumbled into a gorilla pen, right? Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. At a zoo. And, you know... They shot the gorilla. 
left the gorilla in danger the little boy further than he already was. And I'm sorry, I don't think that was the right thing to do. I mean, I guess it depends on whether human life is that much more valuable than the life of one of our cousins. The ape was not killing the boy. I think the ape had carried or some say dragged the boy from one end of the enclosure to the other. I think it bent over backwards to get the tranquilizer gun out. I think it bent over backwards to bring a special treat in there that is the gorilla's favorite thing in the world and try and lure it away. I think you try. I just think you try. And when that gorilla was shot dead for the fact that through no fault of its own, a child had wandered into its enclosure, yeah, makes me want to hug my dog. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And by the way, gorillas are endangered and humans are not. I know that sounds terrible because we're all supposed to look at humans as like, I don't know, divine and, and uh, the life of one human is more valuable than the lives of how many apes. But I tell you, we've got way too many humans in the world already. And humans are encroaching on places where the smattering of apes that are left in this world are quickly going extinct. So I think we need to rethink this whole notion of what's sacred. How about stewardship of sacred creation? We've been placed in charge. How are we doing? And that gets back to Kong 2, because everything ultimately comes back to Kong 2, 1976. Mm-hmm. John Kilmer. Yep. <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> mean, you see it now with you know the Dakota thing. I mean, it's, it's there's so much yeah. that you could look at. I think perhaps Kong 2, the 76, is the one that you can look at and find modern-day analogs or, or things to connect it to now. Right. Right. It's the most political. Yeah. 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 Most political of the three. And by the way, you mentioned the pipeline, and yeah, rightly so. And I was going to say, and that, that land actually belongs to those people, the indigenous people. But no, their attitude was and is, we belong to the land. It's a completely different paradigm. Right. And, you know, I'm like 132nd Native American, just like my hero, Elizabeth Warren. Um, <laughs> and what I always say is, you know, Thanksgiving approaches here. The mistake was we, we came over here and started talking to these people and telling these people. And we should have shut them up and listened. They had for, what, 12,000 years or so since crossing from the Bering Strait. They had lived in harmony with this land and knew how to do that. And we could have learned that, too. Would have been a different uh, world we live in now. Yeah. It actually gets us back to Kong because, you know, he's to the extent that he exists, which is to say in the imagination, he's a metaphor for nature, yep. among other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, nature is beautiful and bold and, and dangerous and all the other things that, uh, that Kong is. And uh, with understanding... Yeah, I think it is possible to live in harmony with nature. You just you don't go exploiting it, and you don't go like carrying it from an island to your continent so that you can make a lot of money. You just you do like honestly, you do like Dwan does, and you do like Andero uh, Naomi Watts version does, and and you figure out ways to communicate and to bond across that line, across that boundary. Whether we're talking about the animal kingdom or just more generally stewardship with cre- of of creation. Mm-hmm. And so I've gotten very didactic over the course of this whole interview. So I guess it's only right that. I am that way too. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a, a 
an amazing conversation. And I don't know if part of it has to do with the fact that it's been in the hopper and kind of percolating for the past year. Because like you said earlier, we've been talking about doing this for a while. And just with everything that happened last year, things just didn't work out. And yeah. we couldn't make it happen. And I'm so glad we made it happen this time around. We are not going to wait nearly as long. I say this to every person that comes on the show. We're not going to wait nearly as long to have you on again. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and hold me to that. We need to have you back on again down the line, especially with this project that you and Steve have going on right now with the plays. Yeah, the plays, just very quickly, Uncanny Encounters Live, co-written by Stephen D. Sullivan and yours truly. And uh, these are playlets they make for uh, about a 110-minute show, under two hours, in two acts, and they're all genre playlets. Some of them are scary and some of them are darkly funny. We are hoping that we can get some of the smaller theater companies, or mid-sized, that are interested in genre work to take a look. And many do genre work around Halloween, and that's great. It would be great for Halloween 2017. And other companies are open to it year-round. If you want a free copy, uh, we'll send you one. But, you know, don't do not do that if you're not really involved with the theater company. Don't do that to get a free book. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am holding here with my coffee in it. I'm holding this uh, um, souvenir cup. And it's uh, it's it's uh, got Kong with the snake, and then it's got Kong on top of the World Trade Center tower. The two classic illustrations from the early promotional material, and it says copyright 1976 by Dino De Laurentiis Corporation, all rights reserved. And that's what I'm drinking my coffee out of this morning while talking to you. Good man, good way to here do it. Here it is. There, this is the sound of the cup. <laughs> So the book is it is it something you can get now? Is it available now for people to just buy if they wanted to? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. They can get it on Amazon. They should not get it used, or they can contact Stephen D. Sullivan or me okay. through our websites, paulmcomas. dot com, I think Stephen D. Sullivan. dot com, or walkaboutpublishing. dot com, maybe, or they can certainly contact either of us through you. Sure, of course. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we should get these things performed. Some have been performed before individually. Um, one was performed in Vegas, no, never as a suite, never as a, an attack suite of plays. And they go very well together. And the last one's about the end of the world. So, you know, where are you going to put that one? Got to go at the end. Well, true. Yeah. It's, called, it, it, it's one of mine, and it's called Apocalypse Then, as opposed <laughs> to now. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Right on. Well, you know, if I don't talk to you yeah. again uh, before the end of the year, you know, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving, a happy holiday season, and all of that, although I'm sure we'll be in touch by email at the very least. For sure. Let's talk on December 17th, actually. 40 years to the day. <laughs> Give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right, man. Well, you have a good rest of your day again. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing, and you take care, Paul. Always a great pleasure. Thank you, Derek. Again, Huge thanks to Paul for coming on the show to talk about King Kong. This is a conversation that's been in the works. It's been brewing for over a year. I hope it was worth the wait for everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you look at King Kong 76 in a different light because I certainly do. And I think some of you guys and gals did too, at least based on some of the comments that I got back regarding last week's episode and that chronic quote. Like this email that we got from listener Butch. First, I wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast, and particularly your part one episode on the 1976 version of King Kong. I've been a Kong fan since I was a kid in the 1960s. I'd like to mention, 
if you were not aware that during the pre-production of the film, Universal Studios was also looking into making their own version of the film with stop-motion animation provided by Jim Danforth. In fact, there's a lot of legal hassles as to who was going to make their own version until both studios came to an agreement and Paramount Pictures made the film we see today. Thanks again, and congratulations on a fine podcast. Yeah, Butch, actually, we talked about that in the second part of the conversation with Paul, I was fascinated by that. And I've said this before. I'm fascinated by the whole public domain, who owns what copyright, this or that. I could geek out about that for hours. Now, I'm not going to do that on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, but I did find it fascinating that one of the things that Universal was saying is that King Kong was in the public domain. And then if you go back to the original release, the RKO release, some of the things that they did to keep it from falling into the public domain, there was a novelization or a novel version of the story produced that that was copyrighted and then just fascinating stuff. So yeah, I would have been really interested to see what Universal would have done. There's a movie out there, Mad Monster Party, where there is the King Kong character in the mix, but they can't call him King Kong because Universal or whoever put together Mad Monster Party couldn't talk about King Kong without paying RKO or Ted Turner or whoever had the rights at the time a whole bunch of money. So they just called it it, I believe, or maybe a question mark. And I'll be talking about Mad Monster Party in the future with a old favorite guest here on Monster Kid Radio. Stay tuned for that. Butch, thanks for writing in. We also got an email from Jason S. Uh, he said, thanks for the Thanksgiving Kong listening. Loved it. I've got the Japanese King Kong 76 Blu-ray. It's well worth picking up. It's got the deleted extended scenes and a short 20-minute extra looking back on the film and the production. And it's only about $12 on Amazon in Japan right now. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, Jason, I went and looked after you said that. Yeah, added it right to my Amazon wish list. We're in that time of year where I really need to stop buying movies for myself. But yeah, I would love to add this to my collection. And yeah, it's because I liked King Kong 76. The more I talk with Paul about it, the more I ended up enjoying it. Not to play my hand early, but I think I've been converted. I'm not going to say it's the best, but I have been converted to enjoy 76 a lot more. Let's get to some voicemails, though, and hear what you had to say. Steve Sullivan here, Stephen D. Sullivan, author of the award-winning Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the just-out Manos, The Talons of Fate, just in time for Christmas, something really scary and awful. So uh, grab it and find out. Calling about King Kong, which, as you may remember, is one of my favorite films. It's right there, number two under Casablanca in the all-time list, which would put it right at the top of any fantasy and science fiction horror list. Anyway, love the film. Interested in what you and Paul are talking about, but I'm calling because of the quote you put up, Kong is a fantastic beast, and audiences have more affinity for him than they do Frankenstein or other screen monsters. I think that might possibly be true, and I'd like to posit why. And I think it's because, as human beings, we do tend to identify with furry animals, even really, really huge furry animals, more than we do perhaps with a guy assembled out of pieces from the grave. And maybe that's why a lot of people tend to identify with the wolfman, too, because like an ape, we see something in the wolfman that we see in ourselves, and we see that same kind of thing in King Kong. Kong is like the wild part of us, and we empathize with that, especially when he's lusting after, whether it's Fay Ray or one of the other lovely ladies in the other films, I think it's, it is easier to identify with Kong in some ways because he's he's almost human, and he and he loves the girl, and you know that's easy to identify with, even when he's rampaging around and throwing 
villagers around and chewing on them and stomping them underfoot and dropping ladies off of tall buildings that aren't Fey Ray, you kind of understand what he's going through. So, yeah, maybe, maybe a little more than a lot of other beasts, and maybe that helps account for part of the popularity of King Kong. I have to disagree with Paul that the uh, the 76 feature is, is uh, anywhere near the best of the three. I think it's easily the worst. And I think uh, despite its perhaps ambitions and uh, the fact that they threw a lot of money at it, it just didn't come off as well as it could. Because Kong is not, King Kong is not about Beauty and the Beast. We have a movie for that. It's called Beauty and the Beast. King Kong is about a Beauty and the Beast story with an adventure story with dinosaurs and 76 was severely lacking that. Maybe we can talk about it a lot more later. Anyway, that's it for now. For Cushing Horror fans, you should know Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is starting up this next month, so join the Patreon now, CushingHorrors.com. Great hearing uh, your show. Great hearing about Kong. Take care. Steve Sullivan, signing off. All right, so of course that was Stephen D. Sullivan. And right off the bat, let's talk about, you know, actually, let's put a pin in it. We're going to get to Manos at the end of the show. I agree with him about identifying more with the furry animals versus, say, like a scaly thing like the Gill Man or maybe even Frankenstein's monster, although that is kind of mammalian as well. There's this mammalian kinship that we sometimes have when it comes to other animals, other beasts of the animal kingdom, you know, lions and tigers and giraffes versus, say, whales or sharks or bugs or anything like that. There's just that connection that we have. So maybe we do identify more with King Kong because of that. Just maybe. I don't know. He does disagree with Paul about the lack of dinosaurs, and I actually think that's a plus. Well, okay, technically, if you want to get real ho 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 about it, there are dinosaurs in King Kong 76 because they're looking for a bunch of oil, and they find oil, and oil came from dinosaurs. Okay, that was dumb. But there are <laughs> – and my wife's actually laughing in the living room right now. I'm glad there wasn't a lot of extra dinosaurs in it. I, I think we had dinosaur overkill in the Jackson version of King Kong. I watched a handful of reviews of the Jackson King Kong before I sat down to record with Paul and a comment that one reviewer made, and I'm blanking on who it was. I, I apologize, but he talked about how the CG of the dinosaurs, their legs were just rubber because they would always miss everybody that they were running through. They never made contact with any of our lead actors or even some of the primary extras. It seemed like every time they were about to step down, they'd miss Jack Black or they'd miss Adrian Brody or they miss whoever. And it just, yeah, it looks kind of silly. I went back and watched it myself and they are kind of wibbly wobbly. It's, it's odd. So yeah, I'm glad there weren't more dinosaurs. I don't think the budget could have handled it. I, I like how it is. But that's okay. We can all agree to disagree or we have our favorite King Kongs. I know, Steve, you are a huge fan of the first Kong. You and I have talked a lot about it. You know who else is a big fan of King Kong? The original? Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland. Hey, Derek, and everyone out there in Monster Kid Radio Land. This is Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland getting in on the conversation uh, about the three Kong films. Um, I'm going to get it out of the way right now. I am a big, big fan of the uh, 33 Kong. I... We'll go see that on the big screen anytime I own it on DVD. I watch it at least once every year. That's one of my favorites. So, that out of the way, let's get to uh, the statement made by William Kronick um, about Kong being 
the monster everyone empathizes with over, say, the Frankenstein monster or the creature from the Black Lagoon, two of my favorites that I really empathize with. I saw that as more of a sales pitch. You know, there's guys working on this film, and of course, it's got to be the big one. It's got to be the best. It's got to be the most awesome. And of course, it's got to have the most empathetic monster out there. So, you know, it's kind of kind of a PR statement, kind of a sales pitch to get you in the theater. So I'm going to go off on a tangent, sorry, because you and Paul were talking about the 77 Kong, which I'll be honest, I haven't seen in decades. It was kind of interesting for me because you're talking about all these scenes and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, the, the jump from one World Trade Center building to the other. That was really pretty cool. Now, for a movie that I have to admit, I did not feel very impressed with. To remember all those scenes so vividly, I'm just kind of like, it's kind of interesting for me. It's one of those things where it's like, why do I remember this movie so well if I wasn't very impressed with it in the first place? Well, of course, listening to you guys talk and getting a chance to think about it while I'm at work and no one's around and I can do that sort of stuff, I realized that my problem was I didn't empathize with the Kong in the 77 version as much as I empathize, I'm sorry, the 76 version, as much as I empathize with the Kong from the 33 version. And I think I understand why. It has to do with the script in the 77, or 76, I keep saying 77, sorry, um, version made Kong more of an adult than the Kong in the 33 version. And, and I'll try and explain it with a situation that occurs in both those movies. In the 77 Kong, there's this scene where he's on display in the giant cage, breaks loose, and decides to go looking for Dwan. And so he's walking through New York and stepping on people. And you see it. I mean, he's stepping on people, and everybody's kind of like, oh, ooh, ow, oh, until Charles Roden gets it, and then there's a big cheer for the smear. Uh, yeah, we were cheering in the theater. I did see it there. Um course he's the bad guy but kong's not stepping on people intentionally we're just tiny and we get in his way now you contrast that with the scene in the 33 version where kong breaks into the village to try and recover and who's been taken away from him and he goes in and steps on a villager but he doesn't just step on that villager he stomps on the villager several times. He grinds his foot, and it's like... You know, and I'm stomping my foot as I do that, so you'll just have to picture that. He's throwing a tantrum. He's throwing a very childish temper tantrum because his bright and shiny new toy has been taken away. Where in the 77... Or, I did it again, (laughs) the 76 Kong. Kong is more adult in that respect. He's not throwing a tantrum. He is just going out and finding Duan, finding this being that he's made a connection with. You know, and if you look, and I started thinking about the monsters I do identify with, uh, or empathize with. You know, um, I don't identify, well, 
we'll get into that. I look at uh, Karloff's Frankenstein's Monster, who is very childlike. He's just hasn't learned the rules because he had a bad father. And the creature from the Black Lagoon, once again, very childish reaction to people coming into his turf. And I and I think that's why I empathize with those over, say, a more refined, civilized monster like the seventy six Kong. Hey, I did it right that time. It's it's one of those things where you know the monsters I empathize with are acting out in ways that civilization has told us are wrong. We've suppressed it. Um, We've been told, you know, you don't throw a tantrum just because someone takes something away. Now, not everybody does that. You know, let's not get into that. But it's kind of like I empathize with the creatures that are suddenly thrust into a world where they have to, let's say, grow up they're no longer able to act the way they are because there's something that's come into them or they've been brought over to a place where they have to behave better. And most of them don't get the chance to make that transition because they're usually shot. Because let's be honest, you know, three-year-old me throwing a temper tantrum isn't much of a threat. Uh, Kong throwing a temper tantrum is a big threat because he's big, he's strong, he's going to take some things out. So I think that was always my problem with the 76 Kong. I just didn't empathize with Kong. He just was almost too civilized. And and the problem went on with um, Jackson's 05 Kong, you know, which basically almost became a giant Matthew McConaughey in a rom-com. You know, I mean, he's the scene on the lake in Central Park was just like, oh, really, guys? Really? But anyway, like I said, I think Kronick's statement was a sales pitch, but I think their script forgot what people get about Kong. We all remember that time where we couldn't have something we wanted. And we all remember that time where we reacted badly to not having something we wanted. And we all remember having to make that transition, at least most of us. Uh, Once again, let's not go there. Um, But most of us made that transition to the understanding that we're not always going to have what we want. And we can't behave that way. And I think part of the reason I empathize with those kinds of monsters, those those childish monsters that rant and, and rave is because I want them to make that transition. I want them to grow up. I want them to find their place. And tragically, they never do. And if we go back to Karloff in uh, the original Frankenstein, you know, he's a very childlike creation. He has no idea what's going on. And in Bride of Frankenstein, as he becomes more civilized, you know, that his tragedy is he realizes he's never going to fit in. Making a monster more, you know, more adult, comparatively, the way I'm talking, uh, just seems to take away from the empathy we might feel towards it. Now, don't get me wrong, once again, you're making me go out and buy 
the 76 Kong, because I'm like, you know, I really need to look again at that movie, because I saw it when I was, you know, in my 20s, and, uh, you know, that there's something there I probably missed. I need to see. Well, actually, yes. No, actually, I was in my teens. Um, so, wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> Anyway, there's something I need to see because you brought up some points that I'm like, wow, I did not get that. I want to see that. And it'll be interesting, but I really don't think I'll ever have the same empathy for that version of Kong as I do for the original. Anyway, enough of that tangent. Thanks for uh, offering us the chance to uh, share in the conversation. It's been wonderful. Can't wait to hear part two. And everybody have a happy holiday season and talk to y'all later. Bye. There could be a lot to unpack there, but I don't think I need to because you really kind of broke it down for us. And I really appreciate you taking the time to put that recording together and sending it in. And yeah, I could see that statement by Chronic as a sales pitch. Of course it was a sales pitch. But I don't know. I think maybe I'm going to go with what Steve said. We do identify more with King Kong than Frankenstein's monster, although I love your analogy, you're comparing them to a child version versus an adult version. That That's fascinating. And I wonder now if I go back and watch all three movies again, and I, I'm not going to anytime soon. I don't think I'm going to watch them all back to back to back again. And by the way, I don't want to hear about getting old, man. I'm just bad time of year to talk about that. Anyway, just saying. Chris, thank you for calling in. People check out shadowoverportland.blogspot.com to keep up to date with Chris. And another call from Steve. Steve Sullivan again here at a continued call, as Paul McComas might say. I wanted to talk a little bit about the three types of Kong. Not sure if you'll have a chance we could do it uh, more fully on a show, but just very briefly, the first Kong, as I said in the previous call, is one of my favorite films of all time. It's right up at the top, right next to Casablanca, which obviously isn't a fantasy film, so Kong wins. And the reason it wins is it's a perfect blend of elements for a movie. It's an action film, it's full of monsters, dinosaurs, and Kong, and it's also got some sex appeal. And it's even got quite a bit of kind of 1930s flapper error agency going on for some of the characters. The characters are all charming, even Denim, who is the kind of guy you can kind of see yourself falling uh, following around and doing crazy, stupid things with, because he inspires that kind of level. Fay Ray is great, and of course you have the amazing work of Willis O'Brien and his crew bringing Kong to life. I just don't see how it gets any better than that. The 1970s version, the Jessica Lange version, well, let's be honest, she's the main reason to see it. She's terrific in it. And Rick Baker's makeup job is really quite good, too. I was surprised to hear that they kept him from doing knuckle-walking like a real gorilla, and I actually think had they done that, it would have improved the picture. The real problem with the 70s film, though, is that they totally overpromised what it was going to be. They talked about having this life-size mechanical Kong that was going to be playing Kong in the picture like it was some kind of a magical robot. And then when you actually get to see that in like one scene, or maybe it's two, it just 
falls completely short. And while the Baker makeup is wonderful, it just doesn't carry it for me. And it also stripped out all of the dinosaur elements, probably because they spent too much money on the giant mechanical Kong. They'd have been much better off spending that money on more special effects, because obviously Oscar winner Rick Baker can do a really, really good job. It also felt to me a bit ham-fisted and exploitative in its themes. And while I am uh, willing to go back and, and watch it again, I do have it in my collection, it's still the third out of three for me in the set. The 2000s Kong, its main fault is it's overlong. And ironically, I actually like the longer version. The director's cut somewhat better because it has more monsters in it, and monsters are always a good thing. So uh, that's a little bit of irony there. The other fault I have with that is Denim. Jack Black as Denim is, he's just obnoxious. He's not a kind of guy that I would follow into danger or off the edge of a cliff because he's clearly a guy that's only out for himself. Yes, he likes making movies in the same way that the 1930s Denim did, but it seems a very selfish like. The original Denim seemed to have a sense of adventure, of wanting to drag people along with him into adventure. This Denim seems completely beset by wanting to make money and be a star and that kind of stuff. And you can see that even in the way that they stage the show with the live Kong at the end of the film. So that really hurts the film for me a lot. I wish to God that they'd cast someone other than Jack Black in that role, or they told him to play it differently, because in the first film, Denim is a sympathetic character, and you feel badly for him in the follow-up, in the sequel, Son of Kong, when, you know, he brought Kong back to civilization, thinking he was going to show people a great thing, and he's completely screwed it up, and he's in debt, and all that kind of stuff. In the end of the the new Kong, the Peter Jackson Kong, I'm like, well, put that guy in jail. The Anne Darrow character, they did a great job of giving her agency and making her interesting and expanding her. And, in fact, the expansions on a lot of the characters worked. Unfortunately, Denim did not. But what the Jackson one could really, really use, or could have used, because it's, it's far too late now, and like I said, I like the longer version better, it could really have used to be severely tightened up, uh, a lot less stuff with the natives who were kind of boring and creepy in this rather than somewhat sympathetic and aboriginal as they were in the first one. Anyway, there's a lot to fix there, but I still like it better than the 1970s version, mostly because the special effects are really cool. We've got a great relationship between Kong and Aaron Darrow, and Andy Serkis gives a terrific performance. But yeah, way too much of the bug sequence. In fact, the extras where they recreated the Kong bug sequence from the original, much better than the one in the film. Anyway, that's a not quite brief enough for one call version of what I think of the three Kong movies. Maybe we could talk about it more in length. I do love talking about Kong. Like I said at the top, it's one of my favorite films. So hopefully we can do that. Yeah, you nailed it, man. The Peter Jackson King Kong is way too long. It just goes on and on and on. And I talked about that with Paul and, you know, the spider pit sequence. He didn't need that. It was just extra fluff that he could do because he could do it. He was Peter Jackson. He had the stroke at the time. 
I stand by my assertion that a lot of that King Kong movie feels like a big budget version. A lot of that King Kong movie feels like a big budget fan film version of King Kong. You know, as somebody who wanted to make movies when he was younger, yeah, I tried to recreate things from Star Wars or Raiders from the Lost Ark. There are plenty of kids out there who've made their own Star Trek movies or Star Wars or Raiders or any of these other things. And it really feels like Peter Jackson, now that he had the money, decided he was finally going to get to do his King Kong. And man, it does feel like his King Kong because it goes on and on and on. There's some good stuff in it, but yeah. You mentioned the dinosaur thing, and I, like I said earlier, I don't think 76 needed it. Chris commented on the script, and then you talked about some of the story and the ham-fistedness of King Kong 76. And I would venture to say, and, and I mentioned this with Paul again, that part of the reason maybe that feels this way to some people is because they weren't really ready to go into production when they did. We talked about the legal situation with Universal and Paramount. They really rushed into production so they could show that they had a presence before Universal did. You know, they kind of kind of make their IP footprint on the King Kong landscape. And And I know that some of the actors and actresses did kind of play with the script a little bit as they went into production. I read interviews with Lang where she says about halfway through the production, she realized she could start tweaking the script. This was her first film. This is her first big time in front of a camera. So she wanted to do everything perfect and spot on and not get fired and that sort of thing. But as the film's progressing, she realizes she can play a little bit with it. And I wonder if maybe some of this loosey goosiness of it and not really being prepared in the first place might have led to some of this ham fistedness creeping into the story. On top of that, though, that's one of the reasons why I like it. Because again, like I said, I, I thought I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up. And I see a lot of these things happening in the production of King Kong 76, and it makes me like it more. It draws me to it. It also feels the most accessible to me. If I were to make a King Kong movie, that's what would end up happening. Because I don't know stop motion. I don't know if I have the patience to do what O'Brien did. And I certainly don't have the resources that Jackson does. And the CG stuff, I can't pull that off. But I could buy a gorilla suit. Hey, Derek, it's Jeff Owens with Classic Horrors Club. I really enjoyed part one of the King Kong discussion with Paul McComas. I have a great fondness for the 1976 version because I, too, was in those peak childhood teenage years when it was first released and was a victim of all the hype. I don't like it as much today as Paul does, but I do rewatch it every few years, and it's always time well spent. As for the question at hand... I understand where William Cronick is coming from when he claims that audiences have more affinity for King Kong than they do for some other screen monsters. For the sake of argument, I tend to agree with him. There are a couple of reasons for me saying that. First of all, a King Kong movie is special and a spectacle. There aren't that many of them. There are many, many, many Frankenstein, vampire, werewolf, and so on movies, and a lot of them aren't very good. I think box office for the three major Kong movies sort of backs up his statement. Also, King Kong elicits a sense of wonder that I don't think other monsters usually do. The closest would be Frankenstein's monster, but there's not one Frankenstein monster. Which one are we talking about? There's pretty much one King Kong. If you talk about him, people know who that is. And finally, along with that, there's a sense of adventure, a fulfillment of fantasy. Who doesn't want to explore Skull Island and discover dinosaurs and giant apes? I don't know many people, well, outside of MKR, that is, who want to build a human from dead body parts or grow hairy during the full moon. Well, that's it for now. A couple of my thoughts. I'm looking forward to part two. And assuming you don't spoil all of my thoughts, I'm probably going to be putting something together for King Kong 76 
since December 17th is the 40th anniversary of its original theatrical release. Take care, Derek. Bye-bye. That was Jeff from the Classic Horrors Club at classichorrors.wordpress.com. I'm glad you enjoyed the conversation, and I'm glad you dig the 76 version. You know, that's another good point about why this movie might have more of a uh, an attachment or an attachability. There aren't as many King Kong movies as there are Dracula's and Frankenstein's and all these other films. You just have a couple of King Kong giant ape films, and that's that. I mean, it's not like it went into the public domain like some people wanted it to at one point. It couldn't be done over and over and over again by who knows how many people. You have the Toho movies, but there aren't that many King Kong, so it makes it more special. I agree. Oh, and uh, one more thing about a comment you made. Don't judge me for wanting to build a Frankenstein monster, okay? I'm just saying. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan again. This guy again? Okay, I'm just kidding. More from Steve. Last call on Kong, I promise. I rewatched the 70s Kong last night, and I enjoyed it. Again, watched the whole thing. Didn't have social media or anything. Just sat and watched it for two hours and ten minutes, which is a little long. But I enjoyed it again. It's still not as good as the other two. But it's got a lot of things going for it. It does have an excellent cast, as pointed out. Uh, Jeff Bridges, Jessica Lange, Charles Grodin, Renee Abergenois, very good. You know, the supporting people are all good. It was written by a, a very competent writer, Lorenzo Semples Jr., who wrote everything from Three Days of the Condor to the Batman Green Hornet TV series, Flash Gordon, Papillon, wide breadth of stuff, so clearly he knew what he was doing. And it's a pretty good kaiju movie, I have to say, overall. And it is a kaiju movie, because it's a guy in a rubber suit, despite the fact that they wanted to kind of insist that most of it was done with this robot, which really they only used in about two scenes. The the whole full-size robot, maybe you're too young to remember them going on about that. And hype is certainly part of the movie's problem, and it just could not live up to the hype. So, a pretty good kaiju movie, but it doesn't really have enough action. There's so little that happens in it compared to the original King Kong. If you just go through scene by scene, you'll discover that it's maybe got a third of the action scenes, and of course, no dinosaurs. So that's uh, part of the problem. And also, that contributes to the whole thing feeling kind of empty. It's supposed to be a lost island and, and kind of exotic and stuff. But it feels like an island with not a lot of stuff going on in it. There's just not that lush feeling that the the first version and even the Peter Jackson version had going for them. It also lacks the Carl Denham-style hero, and that's the problem with uh, Jackson's as well. In the original, Denham is an adventurer. He's a movie maker. He's out to show people things they've never seen before. In this one and in the Jackson thing, the lead character being Charles Grodin in this and, and uh, renamed Denim in the other one, they're greedy. They're out for money. You know, one is looking to make his fortune in oil, and in the, the Jackson remake, Carl Denim is fleeing his creditors, which is something that doesn't even happen in, to him until the second film. And that that hurts both of those films, I think, and really drags them down quite a bit. Uh, again, there was a lot of money spent on this film. Some of it worked really well. The uh, Mecha Kong totally didn't. The gorilla suit is quite good, as you would expect from Rick Baker. But it looks like a guy in a gorilla suit. Them not letting him be gorilla-like, I think, really hurt, because it's a guy in a suit. He walks like a guy in a suit. Anyway, so it's good. But the original is great. And even the Jackson one is a 
little better than this, you know? I know that Paul's really in love with Jessica Lange, and who isn't? She's just awesome. But all things considered, it just doesn't hang as well together as the first one, or even the third one. It's got same of the, some of the same faults as the third one, including being somewhat overlong. Now, having said all that, again, I did enjoy it. And on a monster scale, I'd probably give it three out of five. So, you know, a good solid movie, just not an exceptional movie, nothing to go out of your way to see. But it did make me want to watch King Kong Lives Again, which I haven't done for a long time, and I do have it in my collection. So I'm probably going to do that. And really, in the end, what more can you ask than that you suck people into the into the sequel, right? So, so again, Kong Lives, not nearly as good as Son of Kong. But we all know that, right? If nothing else... I hope that the conversation that I had with Paul, and I don't think I'm going to be able to break that habit for a while, Kongifying everything, but the conversation I had with Paul, if nothing else, I hope it drives people to go and watch the 76 version again. I'm not saying you're going to fall in love with it. I'm not saying it's going to be your new favorite movie, but I think there's a lot of quality and a lot of really interesting things in there. Like I said earlier, I want to add it to my home collection because I'd love to watch it again. I'd love to really just spend some time and watch it to enjoy it, not necessarily watch it to talk about on Monster Kid Radio, although I enjoy that too. But you know, you know what I mean? So I'm glad you watched it again. I'm glad people are giving it another shot. And, you know, I think it does deserve a little bit more respect and attention than it gets. Hello, Derek Joe Wyden here, just commenting on your last podcast. You know, there's not enough podcasts, there's not enough discussions on the 76 Kong. This is my favorite Kong. I love this film. I saw this three times in theaters in early 77. I was 10 or 11 years old and loved it. Absolutely loved it. In a lot of ways, this is the film that's responsible for me wanting to know and learn about films. I wanted to know who the actors were. I wanted to know who the special effects guys were, how they did it. It was, you know, I wanted to know who the director was. The score. This is the first time I really noticed the score in the movie. I absolutely love the score for this film. I actually own it on vinyl. Uh, it's not my original copy, but I do have it. And, and I love the score. I think it's a sweeping, romantic, epic score. And I think it's a sweeping, romantic, epic movie. And, you know, you and your co-host hit so many – you said out loud stuff that I've been thinking for decades about this film, that the fact that's a man in a suit I think is a plus. I always did. I, I You know, one thing comes across, man. He Kong is the leading man in this film. He really is, and that really comes across. And, you know, you guys hit upon a great uh, – a bunch of great points, but you know, there was one thing that really took me by surprise in 76 because in 76 all we really had was the 33 version a couple of toho versions in there too but for the most part we had the 33 version to kind of for lack of a better word compare it to and you know in the 33 version as much as we feel for kong in that one too and we're sad when he dies at the end and his fate and everything but for the most part he was a monster i mean all ann darrell wanted to do was get away from him and when he claims the Empire State Building, I mean, they're real quick to shoot him down, you know? This, this was a little different. In this one, Dwan was trying to protect him. I mean, she did not want him hurt. Obviously, the Jack Prescott, the Jeff Bridges character, he was doing all he could to protect him too. The fact that she was trying to, I think the impact of this Kong's fate 
is stronger in this movie than in the 33 version. I really do. And that really took me by surprise. I think that, because Jackson did it in his too, in the 2005 uh, Jackson film. He did the same thing, but I think that kind of took me by surprise in 76. Did not expect that, you know? And um, I, I, like I said, since 77, 76, I have absorbed everything I could on this film. Really, uh, printed material, everything you can, everything I could find and read on it. I have uh, I've absorbed it for the last 40 years. And it's really kind of too bad that uh, we didn't get an official Blu-ray anniversary release because we're coming up on its 40th, uh, yeah, 40th anniversary. And it's really too bad. And, I mean, the closest thing we got is there was a Japanese release either earlier this year or sometime, last, sometime this year, I think it was. And it was a region-free, I believe it's region-free, and there is a English, the original English uh, dialogue is in there. And there's some pretty cool sp- special features. Uh, there's a documentary in there that's pretty good. It's, you know, a little, um, there's some inaccuracies in it, but um, there's a whole bunch of the deleted scenes. Now, the deleted scenes are not in the film. They're a special feature, but they're in there. And they're pretty interesting. It would be really cool to get an anniversary release of this film with um, maybe an audio commentary or with um, or the television version with all those deleted scenes added back in. That would be really cool to see. But as far as I know, there's nothing like that coming out, and it's really too bad because I think this film deserves it because I think there's more fans of this film out there than a lot of people might think because I've listened to a couple of other podcasts on this film, and there's really not that many. And they're... You know, the, 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 the podcasts I listened to, they were all fans of it as well. So I think there might be more fans of this film, uh, than we might think. And I think the film has grown to be more popular over the years. And I don't know, maybe, but I, like I said, it's, I've always, my love for this film has just grown over the years. I love it. And, um, I cannot wait for part two. Uh, of your podcast on, on Kong. And, uh, there's one other point I want to make, but I'll save that for part two because, you know, they built that big 50 foot quote unquote robot that was a bust that didn't work. I always thought it did work. And I'll make that point maybe in my next, uh, in my next comments. But looking forward to part two. Can't wait for it. Uh, so glad you're talking about Kong and, uh, can't wait for part two. Talk to you soon, Derek. Bye. So that was Joe Iden from the Fandom Radio Podcast. You can find it at fandomradiopodcast.podbean.com. And Joe, I hope part two lived up to your expectations and we, we delivered for you. I had a, I said it again. I'm, I'm going to keep saying it. I had a blast. So much fun. And I'm glad you enjoy this movie. You know, the more that I work on this episode, the more I think about it, the more I'm editing things and putting things together, I, really am growing to like this film. I want to have that Blu-ray. Is it really region-free? Because if it is, I know Paul's interested. Uh, I've got a multi-region Blu-ray player, so it's not a big deal, but I know a lot of people don't. If it's really multi-region, well, there you go, Paul, if you're listening. Uh, you know, I'll look into that, though, before people... <laughs> I, I would just, it sounds great, man. I'm, I'm stuttering and stumbling over my words because I'm so excited. It would be cool to see the extended or the TV scenes reintegrated into the film. I know a lot of movies did this in the seventies and eighties and, you know, they'd have special TV versions. Uh, the movie Halloween comes to mind would be a TV version versus the theatrical. I'd love to see it all just kind of married together just to have one long narrative, but I don't know. I, did the original director shoot the TV? 
sequences. I I don't know. I, I want, would they be able to match up thematically and feel right, or just like who knows? I'd have to see it to to find out. So again, hello Amazon wish list. I'm saying a commentary track would be amazing, and I happen to know a guy whose name rhymes with Wal Wahamas who might be qualified. <laughs> So if anybody's uh, out there who's interested in something like that and actually has the poll to make it happen, I'll put you in contact with a guy. Just, you know. But yeah, fantastic uh, feedback. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to hear what you had to say about the giant robot. Call back. I want to thank everybody for calling in or writing in their thoughts about King Kong. You adding to the conversation made the conversation that I had with Paul that much better. Again, thanks to Paul as well. You can be found at paulmccomas.com. There will be a link in the show notes. And I thought this might be interesting to share while I was recording with Paul. This happened. And King Kong. Oh, that one is. Well, of course, there's the landline. Hold on a second. Yellow. Oh, hi, Greg. Yeah, I'm doing the interview. Hey, say hi to uh, say hi to Derek. For say, it's Greg Starr. Hey, hey, Greg. How you, can you hear me? Uh, if I put you on speaker. Okay, go ahead, Derek. Hey, Greg. How you doing, man? I, I couldn't make out what he said, but... Uh, yeah, he said, how are you, Derek? I, okay. You know, so I'll, I'll shoot him an email. Tell him I'll email him this, uh, later this afternoon. Yeah, you heard, you heard that, right? He's going to email you this afternoon, and I'll call you back as soon as we're done here. Okay, thanks. Bye. That's Greg Sterrett. We've had Greg on the show in the past with Paul, and I'm excited because in December, I'm going to get with him, and we're going to talk about a silent film. We're going to be talking about the 1928 film, The Man Who Laughs. He's a big Conrad Veidt fan, and I'm slowly becoming one as well, so that's going to be a treat. All right, I want to switch gears from giant monkey movie, or I guess he's not really a monkey, but giant ape movie, King Kong, to Hammer. This past week, we lost Valerie Gaunt, who didn't do a lot, but she did make two films. She appeared in two Hammer movies that are incredibly important to monster kids. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved. 
the girl who is his sister and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. Tim Lucas over at the Video Watch blog posted an excellent obituary eulogy remembrance of Valerie Gaunt. She didn't do a lot of films, but The Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula, or just Dracula if you're on the other side of the pond, are so important when it comes to monster kiddom. They really brought the monsters to another generation of monster kids. And we were talking earlier about how there are so many different Frankensteins and Draculas. The Hammer Frankensteins and Draculas are really good. And we wouldn't have had that wave of hammer horror without these two movies. And I don't know if these two movies would have been as effective. Okay, maybe that's saying a lot because you have Cushing and Lee, but these movies really did benefit from having her in these movies as well. If you haven't seen these movies in a while, I highly recommend them. I know that when it comes to what you call hammer glamour these days, these movies are a little more restrained than what you would see in the mid-60s or even 70s hammer films. But she still has an amazing charisma, gives amazing performances. If you do go back and watch these movies, pay special attention to her because she really does make those movies even more resonant than a lot of the other monster movies that were coming out in the mid to late 50s. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. Look, now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why, he has no further use for it? Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now... The monster was the master. Paul, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature and see that you pay for these atrocities. No! Monster Party! Starring Boris Karloff, 
And in order of their appearance, Dracula, Frankenstein, the werewolf, the hunchback, the mummy, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and in order of his disappearance, the invisible man. Also starring Phyllis Diller as the hostess with the least. <laughs> <laughs> it's a come-as-you-are party that's out of this world. You don't get invited. You get committed. It's a psychedelic scary. With the grooviest ghouls of all time. Mad Monster Party! <laughs> Anyone? It's a blast. Yeah. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. This is Jackie Ray Naiman Jones. I play Debbie in Monos, the Hands of Fate, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, big thanks to Paul. Thanks to Jeff, Butch, Chris, Steve, Joe, Jason, and, well, King Kong himself for making this episode what it was. I had a blast. I hope you guys and gals dug it as well. Everything that we talked about on the show, you can find in the show notes, links to all the different websites over at monsterkidradio.net. Here you can find everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes. There's links to our Facebook group and our Facebook page. And hey, thank you. This past week, we finally hit our 1,000 like mark on Facebook. So thank you for those of you who have liked us on Facebook. And if you haven't and you're a Facebook user, well, you know, Maybe we'll shoot for 1,001. I, I don't know. We just appreciate all of your support over there on Facebook. means a lot. Thank you. Also appreciate everybody who supports the show through our Patreon campaign. I appreciate you supporting us that way, giving us reviews in the iTunes store, liking us on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is. We just appreciate everything that you do for this show. I say we, but I mean me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our contact information is also at our website. You can call us at 503-479-5657. 
It's 503-479-5MKR. Now, there is a three-minute limit, so if you do have more than three minutes worth of stuff to say, we'll call in more than once, and I'll sit your voicemail together the way I did with Steve, or send in an audio file like Chris did at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can also just send us a written email there as well. You can also reach me on Facebook, of course. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, again, we're changing up the schedule a little bit. We're welcoming back a guest who hasn't been on the show for, I'd say, at least two years. Jackie Ray Naaman Jones is coming back to Monster Kid Radio. She's going to talk about all things Monos. We're going to talk about the upcoming sequel. And I'm going to call it the official sequel to Monos because she's involved, as are a couple of other original cast members, including her father reprising his role as the master. So she's going to come on and talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about Mono, some of the other Monos projects, like Stephen D. Sullivan's two versions of Monos, two novelizations, one's a comedy and one's a straight-up horror. And from what I understand, the horror one is really good. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but the comedy one is a lot of fun. And Jackie wrote the intro to those. Jackie's also written a book. She's going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about some of the events that she's got coming up, like something that's happening in Tacoma at the Blue Mouse Theater. They're going to be showing... Manos. It's going to be part of a double feature with another movie, and it sounds like she's doing an author signing as well. So if you're in the Tacoma area, you want to get up there, and I believe it's happening December 10th. But come back next week to find out about it. After that, finally getting to battle for the Planet of the Apes. I promise. This time it's not getting changed. Once again, thank you for listening. And remember that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Let's Go Ape. It's from the album Let's Go Ape. And I say that the way because there's an exclamation point in it. It's by the WJLP Appreciation Society. You can find the album for sale at wjlp.bandcamp.com with some other amazing albums as well. And as of this recording, you can get a package deal all four albums are 50 percent off you can download them that way or look them up over on soundcloud soundcloud.com slash william dash j dash l-e-p-e-t-o-m-a-n-e or again all the link in the show notes talk to everybody next week ciao mm-hmm.